Welcome to the Adversity Psychologist Podcast, a podcast incorporating narratives about facing and navigating adversity, a mixture of people, their experiences, and professional psychological discussion. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo. I'm a qualified and regulated psychologist with over 20 years' experience of mental health, disability, and human behavior. I want to share people's stories of navigating adversity in the hope that through being heard, a dose of compassion and some understanding, we can help others in the face of adversity too. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast. I'm Dr. Tara Quinturillo, and today, career highlight, if I'm allowed to say, I have Professor Tony Atwood with me, and I'm going to let him introduce himself, tell us a little bit about his work and his background. Oh, thank you, Tara. Uh, Where do I begin? I'm a fellow clinical psychologist trained in England, and when I was at Hull University as a first-year psychologist, in way back in 1971, was a volunteer at a special school and met two classically autistic children and decided that was my career. I was 19. So I spent many decades exploring and enjoying autism, how brave such individuals are. It's it's almost like Christopher Columbus discovering a new world. And in a way, autism is seeing the world through different eyes. And uh, so I've explored all dimensions of of autism. So that's why I'm here today. And we're going to talk specifically today about people in adulthood who may be considering where they may be on the autistic spectrum. Um, And over in the UK recently, we've had a few kind of public figures who have been recently diagnosed, Christine McGuinness, for example, but also we've had Chris Packham doing an absolutely fantastic series on the BBC, um, talking to people about their lived experience. But, you know, adults, people who perhaps haven't had that childhood diagnosis, who have perhaps felt a bit different, but haven't really understood the reasons why and it's actually a clinical area of interest of mine so I've worked with people on the autistic spectrum for over 20 years as well so really really excited for this episode and one of the reasons that I want to talk about females is this is an area that you've been doing some fantastic working more recently as well and I did one of your classes earlier on this year which was absolutely fantastic what I want people to get today are, are you know kind of members of the public who may be thinking about autism late diagnosis in life but also there may be clinicians and other healthcare workers people education workers that may be able to get something from this in terms of being able to just think differently about some of the people they work with who may be missed um, who may be seeking out the possibility of having a diagnosis so let's get stuck in so I want to talk about females why probably a really big question we could do a whole podcast just on this what is it that means that females are more likely to get missed in terms of picking up autism that they may be autistic. I think this is a, a topic I call adaptations to autism. And there are many adaptations. And two to explore here are camouflaging and compensation. Yeah. Now, camouflaging means you know you're different and you don't want to be noticed, looked at, but you want to be able to be included you also don't want to be bullied and teased you want to be safe within a group and so you observe people and in autism you're very good at systems and patterns and you apply this to other people in other words at five six years old they become a psychologist 
analyzing people, how do they relate, and you learn the social rules. Then you become very upset when somebody breaks the social rules. They're not supposed to do that. And you're the class policeman in a way. But you learn to create a mask to act typical. And as Maya Tode, who's Danish and autistic clinical psychologist, said, it's being awarded an Oscar every day for your performance. Yes. But this is yep. exhausting. You're not the authentic self. We shall explore this further. So that there's one reason is you have done such a good job at fitting in that you're too social to be autistic, but it's the amount of mental energy and effort that goes into the social. Now, the other is a form of, of compensation, of realising I don't do people, I'm not very good, so I shall have a career where I don't need to engage with people. I'll become a wildlife ranger at a, a reserve somewhere where I'm looking after the plants and the native animals and so on. And I only see people when I absolutely have to. And that's my choice, and it's very brief. Or, yes. um, in a way, I will choose part-time work because I can't do any more than that. I will work out a lifestyle that accommodates my social and sensory difficulties. So you're succeeding and people won't think autism, but you are showing a sense of, of compensation. And one of those uh, forms of, of compensation is a career that doesn't involve social contact. And one of the things that really strikes me then, so just pure observations of the number of people and I just work with adults I don't work with anybody under the age of 18 is the amount of people that say that it's the fatigue um sometimes leading to lower mood there's high anxiety levels burnout I quite often see professional women who are totally nutly burnt out and that's not to do specifically with the industry they're in or their day-to-day -day work demands it's that they are undiagnosed autistic um, and that's the thing that I'm really interested in. I would add that burnout can also occur for teenagers who can be burnt yes, out. Yes. It, it's really living or working in a non-autism friendly environment where your social aspects, your sensory sensitivity, ability to cope with change and so on are not accommodated. And you're very brave in trying to tolerate an intolerable situation. Now, this leads in clinical psychology and psychiatry, to an ethical dilemma. Do yes. you use CBT and medication to make the person tolerate a toxic environment? And I'm concerned about that. That's something we're going to bring in, kind of social media, other people's views. One of the things I did recently was a documentary with the BBC. And one of the questions that came up in that is whether do people need a diagnosis later in life? What's the kind of utility in that? And then kind of off the back of that, people who may be self-diagnosing from what they've heard other people talk about on social media, for example, TikTok, which is a very common place for people to go to source information these days. And do you have a particular view on, because I do get asked this a lot by my own caseload, do I need to have a diagnosis now? You know, how might things be different if I did go along that route? I think the answer comes from autistic women in particular themselves. Because I may be seeing somebody in their mature years and I say, when would you have wanted to know? And they say as early as possible. Because I wouldn't have thought I was bad, mad or, or yes. stupid. I'd have had a more positive view 
of myself and and feel that I'm defective and must be corrected to be like everyone else. We also find after the diagnosis in the mature years, the need for camouflaging, the mask is less. And it may not be immediate, but gradually the person thinks, well, I should be authentic. And that's what as a clinician, I'm trying to encourage is the authentic self. So we'll take what aspects of autism are confusing or abrasive to others. Okay, let's work together giving an explanation of why this is confusing. So in the work setting, may not read the signals of, please don't interrupt me. And and then creating an explanation of, I'm the sort of person who's not very good at reading not now signals. Please raise your hand if you're on the phone and you don't want me to interrupt. Make a clear signal. I can see it and I will stop. But if it's not clear, I won't see it. So it's those sorts of things that they feel now that they can be the true self. But there's another very important dimension. And that is in autism throughout that person's life has been a yearning for connection. And then you can connect with like-minded individuals and have their support, their genuine empathy for your situation, wise advice from their own experiences. It's almost like a coming home feeling of, I know my tribe. I can be true to my real self. And generally, there can be an improvement in quality of life. That's exactly what I wanted to get from today, that quality of life. I don't know whether you managed to see the Christine McGuinness documentary, BBC. Um, And I was really struck by the amount of effort and fatigue that she'd experienced, the planning and preparation that goes into every social interaction for her. But the person that we've seen on the television screen for the past several years, most people wouldn't know that. The effort that goes in public speaking, for example, you know, presenting TV shows. That's what I want to look at in terms of women, particularly. Why is it, do you think, that they get missed more than men? in terms of being picked up? I think I think one of them is that they, they camouflage or compensate. But the other is clinicians' knowledge yes. of autism. So glad you said that. Yes. But I'm going to now be provocative, okay? And, and as a podcast, I'm prepared to do that. Yes. And that That's is... That's what I want. are out there. <laughs> okay. Is the ADOS... Oh, no. The ADOS <laughs> was never designed for or standardised on sufficient number of autistic women to be a valid, reliable measure of autism in adult women. It gives too many false negatives. And so you have a professional who says, oh, it's got to be the ADOS. The ADOS says, no, well, in that case, it can't be autism. All that means is the uh, the ADOS is not sensitive to those characteristics. Now, in a diagnostic assessment, there are bits of the ADOS that are interesting you might use, but please do not use the ADOS as the only means of diagnosing autistic women. So for people listening who may not have a clinical background, the ADOS is one of the assessment tools that clinicians would use as part of your assessment process. But some in the kind of clinical community, some things get kind of put forward as a gold standard, don't they? But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are. Yes. Now, the the marketing of the ADOS has been excellent. 
And, and the view is in research and clinical work, it is the primary instrument. But all instruments are yes. fallible. And in statistics terms, it was not appropriate for diagnosing adults of average intellectual ability. You, you have, it was designed for kids and the material is kids. And it is very embarrassing as a clinician to ask a CEO of a big company to talk about frogs jumping on lily pads. And, and you're thinking, they, they must think I'm weird. Um, that is the, the person being assessed. This is for children. We need uh, a, a better instrument. We, we're developing screening tools, and I've been working with colleagues in developing screening tools, etc. And I have my own clinical script that I use, and there are various subtleties yes. that I notice. And so it's a measure of clinical opinion based on extensive experience that is far better than ticking the boxes and giving a number. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that because for me, I'm a big believer There sometimes there's just a gut instinct. So somebody may come into my um, therapy room who's referred or self-referred for anxiety, for example. But when you have worked with a certain population for a very long time, sometimes there's just this radar or there's this instinct that this isn't just anxiety. There's something there. But what can be really hard, and sometimes when you're working with particular organisations, let's just say, you don't have the autonomy to be able to assess in the way that you think should be done so you know if in my nhs days for example there were certain protocols about how we assessed autism when you work in private practice you've got more time i find i have more scope to bring in other um, measures that really does help me do a really thorough assessment if there are women listening to this now they may say well why, why are these tools not picking me up let's let's talk about them as individuals is there anything that you can help explain that that might be different in terms of the way autism presents in women compared with men for example okay one of the the issues you face as a clinician is this person is not naive they have read lots of information on the internet they've filled in all yes, the questionnaires yes. and they've got the terminology so what i have to do as a yes. clinician is ask for examples that aren't replications of what's in the textbooks <laughs> So in other words, when yeah. you say, I say, no, that's that's not in any book. I know them. That is original. That is authenticity to the diagnosis. So I'm getting particularly women who say, I think I'm autistic. I've done the uh, autism uh, spectrum quotient, ASQ and things like that. Uh, yeah. Do you think I am? So I will go through that. But there's also questions on for example, you, you have such excellent social skills, your smiles, your gestures and so on. How did you do that? Oh, I had to learn it. I copied yes. people. It took ages. And I decode and I analyze social autopsies, what to do. So what you see today isn't what I was like years ago, which is when they didn't know about girls and autism. So as a clinician, yeah. Yeah. there are certain key questions, one of which is, I've only just met you, um, having a conversation here. I don't know you, but can you answer this question for me, please? Who are you? And then there's an intake of breath and a long silence and often a comment like, that's why I'm here. I don't know. I know who I'm supposed to be, but yes. that's not the real me. And I've learned this facade. I'm a chameleon yeah. for the situation, but I still don't know the real 
me. And this has become automatic. This has become so easy. This has given me my success, my social network. I can't take the mask off because I may lose everything that I've worked for over the decades. And what's really interesting about that, when then it comes back onto the kind of people that we're seeing on a daily basis who are coming in and saying, I think I may be autistic, but I don't know, is that quite often it's that fatigue, that burnout, the exhaustion, things that might be more obvious to people because they're better equipped to know about things like anxiety, for example, that people aren't always asking. So when you said it comes to the clinician as well and the background of the person is that there may be the result, kind of role of stereotypes, presumptions, you can't be autistic because you gave a wonderful example in one of your talks at the beginning of the year, you know, you've got too many friends, you, but you make eye contact, so you can't be. And I wonder how many people then maybe don't seek out discussing with the clinician, maybe because they thought, well, this person thinks I'm not, or I don't seem to match these criteria. And when you're following little sound bites on social media, for example, I think there could be many pros and cons to, you know, social media can provide many patients I've seen with an outlet to go, well, actually, that might be me. There are lots of women saying these similar things. But at the same time, in a 30 second sound bite, it might be, well, that's not me, because I make eye contact and I have friends. Yes. Yeah, it, it, yes. it is. I, I must admit that the majority of women that I see who have self-diagnosed are right. That's interesting, yeah. But what I've got to do officially is validate that by examples. I'll use the diagnostic criteria rather than ADOS, and I will take each criterion and write in the report uh, quotes or examples that illustrate that characteristic that are unique to that individual. So uh, it eventually becomes a confirmation and it's interesting that i don't call it a diagnosis i call it a discovery and i say today your autism was discovered i like that terminology because actually i wonder how validating that is for someone who has maybe sat with things often for years sometimes i've seen people in their 50s who said literally for years i've known something's not right I thought I might be autistic, but I've just been met. And again, you know, social media is fairly new for dinosaur psychologists like myself. When I started my career, you couldn't go and search things on TikTok and look on Instagram for reels. Um, So you didn't come across that in the same way as you do now. Um, And I think, you know, if if there are women listening to this or perhaps, you know, I'm thinking things like spouses, co-workers, people who may be thinking about somebody they know and want to support them. I love the fact that you call that a discovery. There are a huge proportion of people and a lot of people on social media that say, well, what can it do then to have that report, to have the report from someone like you? What's your take on that? So with some of the people that you've worked with, have they given you insight into how that may help them? I think because, yeah, I think what what I say is you can now look at your past through the lens of autism. Why you were bullied, why you drew perfectly as a kid, it was your soothing action, why people teased you, all those sorts of things. You can now have closure because you can understand, but you can also see your future through the eyes of autism. But it also means, and you mentioned it a moment ago, if that person is in a relationship, it may explain potential areas of conflict in the relationship. For example, in autism, emotional recovery is often in solitude. But their typical partner sees that as rejection. Why are you blocking me? 
Why are you not disclosing? And that's the alexithymia, the difficulty converting thought and emotion to speech. How are you feeling? I don't know. So it means that for those who know the person well, especially a partner, they can then understand what the challenges are and go through, right, you have such a good facade at socialising, but you want to end the social event before I do. I now know why. Because you're exhausted. It's like Cinderella at the ball at midnight. Right. In that case, we both have a cue. Time to go. That's interesting. I quite often will end up doing some work with couples when I have worked with an individual. Or sometimes I will give them support in how to manage in the workplace, for example. Um, And obviously, I have a huge proportion of my caseload that want their privacy and autonomy. And some decide not to share their discovery. I'm going to use that word now. I love that. I'm going to steal that. Um, But there are some who actually then want support. How do I then communicate this to others? And actually, for me, that's a huge part of the assessment process in terms of how that can add to quality of life, how it can give you that permission to to drop the mask, to help explain, to help relationships function better. Um, And we don't see that talked about so much in the media. So when I was watching the Christine McGuinness, um, I was really taken aback by how well that was made um, and how well it got across to people that there are so many elements to having an assessment. It's not just about a piece of paper and a rubber stamp, so to speak. And, And that's what I wanted to demystify today, just how much validity there can be in having an official diagnosis that you choose what you do with it. Yeah, it's also for family members. This is why mum or grandma was was like that. So it's not just your partner. Your children will understand why you hated uh, the social gatherings outside the school gates. Why (laughs) all those sorts of things. Um, and, and this is something that it's a beneficial, it is beneficial information, not just for the person concerned, yes. but all those who love that person. And and I think that's important. And then it, it, instead of being criticism, there's more likely to be support. So you change attitudes. And that's what I'm looking for. And quite often, some people say it's a real relief because I've met many, many people over the years who've been labelled, it's OCD, had kind of misdiagnosis, if it's all right to use the word diagnosis. I know that's not acceptable with everybody, but in terms of being told they have something, over the years, many people have been given you know, social anxiety, um, that you've got OCD, you know, you're just shy or you're not making an effort, you're solitary. Um, And then that label has actually had quite a big impact on their mental health. So things like low mood, for example, which has then impacted on their ability to engage in that value-laden life, the things that they want to do. Um, And I'm just thinking, you know, is there anything you think that we could do more to try and educate the wider world on just beginning to think more about whether somebody may be autistic? rather than just presuming this is kind of the more what we used to call an old school kind of axis one presentation of such as anxiety. I, I think there are there are many issues here. Uh, one is going to be the person is different and they know they're different. And gradually, typical people are natural psychologists and they will use, and, and certainly psychologists may use the term like borderline personality disorder. But there's also, because of, stress and issues of uh, autism, there's a higher likelihood of developing an eating disorder, substance abuse, gender dysphoria, etc. 
And I wonder if there was a better attitude towards autism and understanding and support, there wouldn't be such a high level, not only of those conditions, but also depression as well. Now, that's really interesting because that came up in one of the BBC documentaries. And then there was a psychologist that was talking from a specialist eating disorder service about being more aware of screening for the presence of autistic spectrum disorder. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because, you know, I, I come from a background of working in a particular service where that was very much at the forefront, which is probably why we were picking things up. But when I look at my everyday practice now and around my own private practice where I see a complete breadth and width of, of, of psychological issues that as a lone practitioner in the community you might not be thinking of autistic people as yeah. part of your formulation and how we can just try and reach people to start to think a bit more about this yeah and it, this can go for example to relationship counsellors uh, line managers because of conflict or difficulties at work promoting the person to have more social engagement, yes. which is beyond their capabilities. So in other words, it it, it, it helps in many ways. That's why the, the disadvantages tend to be related to the, the diagnostic uh, textbooks, yes. DSM-5, TR, see autism as a, a mental yes. disorder. Yes. And, and I think it's a historical accident that there was a mistake of assuming autism is schizophrenia, therefore it's a psychiatric illness, and it's the preserve of psychiatrists yes. doing the that's diagnosis. A really good point. Yes, um, and and I think yeah. that's of concern because it, it will push people away. I'm not saying a shrink. I'm not. I'm. I'm not. Yes. I'm not going to be admitted yeah. to a hospital. I, I, I'm not going to take medication. I'm not going to see a psychiatrist. Why would I see a psychiatrist? I'm not Absolutely. mad. Absolutely. So the kind of stereotypes. I'm also thinking big elephant in the room. It's accessibility as well. So when we think at the moment, you know, there are huge waiting lists for NHS autism assessments. A lot of people that are seeking private routes, it's having the funds to do that. To see a psychiatrist is another financial step up from seeing other healthcare professionals as well that we have at the moment it's almost like a kind of a bottleneck or a fun, isn't it? there is so much more being spoken about in the media and social media people are I think I've probably just on the top of my head probably had double the amount of referrals for women particularly thinking about autism yeah but the issue then is this bottleneck of where do they go yeah. and i know there's no magic solution for that but we've almost got this perfect storm where we're helping to educate people but it's the, then the kind of roadblocks to how we help people if they want it is but then when you say bottleneck as they get out of the bottle sometimes there's disappointment right i'm autistic where's yeah. the services yeah, where's absolutely. the support where's the yeah. understanding i expected I suddenly came out, I crossed the bridge, but there's nobody there to wel welcome me on yes. the other side who's there to support yes. me. So there can be an initial euphoria yes. Yes. that I've now got an explanation of why I'm different, but that then becomes dysphoria because there is a lack of understanding. Yes. I'm expected to do all this myself. Who's providing the guidance in friendships, relationships, etc.? Is there a magic answer to that, I wonder? So if there's any other clinicians listening <laughs> to this, I wonder what, what, what can we do to turn the tide? Do you have thoughts on that? How can we help people get that support? How can... 
Yes, I, I have my own thoughts of, of with Michelle Garnett yes, here yeah. in, uh, well, in Australia, where she established the Minds and Hearts Clinic, where we then did groups and individual right. work and group work. We worked on changing CBT to accommodate the experiencing and learning style of autism. We do, we, we ran the, the 20 themes in our groups that range from making friends and relationships building resilience for bullying and teasing, being me for autistic girls and women. So we chose what are the themes and then created programs that could be used. So we've got a whole stack of programs. But in the UK, there aren't the people freely available to go beyond diagnosis and say, right, autism. Now, you need a group on employment skills. For example, we've did another program on that called uh, Autism Working, just published by Jessica Kingsley Publishers. And um, that goes through a a self-help manual as well as a group program. So what we're wanting is self-help manuals. So what we will do at the end is make sure we also talk a little bit about where people can find more about you and the work that you do, where they can find the books that you've written as well. And I will make sure that that all goes in the show notes. So one of the things about my podcast is I have very detailed show notes because I don't want people to listen and then be left with, well, where do I go now? So I like to be able to signpost people. So we'll make sure that we do that. There is the question, where to from here? Well, we've been working on that for 20 years. So it's there. You don't need to invent it for the first time. You can modify it for various circumstances, etc. Yeah. But um, th- this is where, dare I say it, Australia is <laughs> in advance of the United Kingdom in terms of allowing specialists in the area of autism yes. to flourish. Yes. And so the Minds and Hearts Clinic began 15, 20, no, about 20 years ago. And other clinics, so now we, we would train the clinicians there. And they then went off and started their own clinics all over Australia in Sydney and Melbourne and so on, as we're in Brisbane. Wow. And uh, they now run the same sort of things. Had a Facebook yes. quote from a colleague, Danuta, in Melbourne, looking for another adult woman to join their group in the programs yes. that they were doing and so on. So, yeah. That's what we'll make sure is that people can go and find out more about those and anybody listening who perhaps wants to take that on a bit more welly over here in the UK yes that would be amazing wouldn't it because sometimes I, I do feel as a kind of a lone practitioner doing your best there's only so much time you have in your week and only so many people that you can work with and it can be quite disheartening when you've got to the point and someone's realizing this is me and you say that initial euphoria I'm sure that will, will resonate with many but then there is that kind of oh what is next and, and wanting that as a good ethical practitioner you want that people don't you um in in terms there are a lot of people at the moment saying well actually i just can't get access so i'm going to self-diagnose do you have views on so i you know I, I i don't have a particular view on it there are pros and cons i get it and at the same time sometimes people might have misdiagnosed themselves it might be something else and that's where an experienced clinician can perhaps you know for example you know the overlap between adhd for example and autistic spectrum disorder um but actually for a lot of people they've said they found that there's a lot of comfort in the communities online that they found for them at the moment understanding themselves in the way that they do can be really helpful yes it is i i I have a, a word of caution 
of where they go on the internet. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It may be an, a, a group, for example, that's yeah. for eating disorders and is encouraging various uh, eating concerns, etc. Yeah. So, the, yes, there is a need for connection yes. and to find your tribe or group. Yes. But it needs to be a, a, a constructive for that individual rather than destructive. Yes. And that's something that I am concerned about is the potential of certain groups to recruit autistic people. Right. Yes. It, it's, it's safety, isn't it? You know, we say as clinicians try and go to reputable sources of information, but what does that actually look like in a day-to-day basis? And maybe there's something is there about, uh, you know, supporting people to know, well, how do I know whether these communities are okay? And I know one of the things I did in the documentary with the BBC was try and just look at all sides. Um, you know, so those people who have lived experience, who are sharing their knowledge, I think, you know, during the, the, the pandemic, particularly, they had a, a huge amount of patients who were saying for them, that was really important to be able to have communities to support them. But also some people were just scrolling through social media videos and going, this keeps coming up, this is me that wouldn't otherwise have thought about it you know people that are kind of deconstructing what we think autism is and one of the things that really strikes me is quite often in males there are quite overt what we call kind of behavioral traits aren't there which then are often not present in women and that again can kind of add to the stereotype of what autism is and what it isn't i've certainly come across patients who said i've been told categorically it isn't that because I have really good yeah. eye contact. I have several friends. You know, I run a social networking company, so I must not have autism. And, you know, how we can just support women to just question, to pull together what they're noticing, what they're observing. Yes. It, it, autism isn't necessarily associated with a failure in a variety of areas. Yes. It can be associated with success, but it was how that was achieved yes. and the cost yes. of that success. That's what people will say. Oh, but you're so good at socialising. Yeah. We will promote you to more social engagement. And the person yeah. is going, no, I can't cope. I'm at breaking point. So that actually sometimes people just want to, f- people fall into little pockets sometimes, don't they? But then it's, as you say, it's really hard to get out. And I certainly know that, you know, just qualitatively, the feedback I get is that for a lot of women in the evening will just get home that kind of metaphor of just literally, I am just done. I can't talk. I can't think. I can't process. And taking time to almost recharge and, and build up again and, and the effort involved in that. And that's something I think that really resonates with a lot of people I work with when you're trying to explain the fatigue, the things that aren't, I don't think, spoken about when we think about autism. Um, and, and having more celebrities, I think having public figures talking about this a bit more, talking about their lived experience can really help with that. Now, there's another dimension we haven't explored, and that is being an autistic mother. Yes, yes. An autistic partner and an autistic colleague or line manager. Yes. But being an autistic mum and there can be issues associated with that. Um, we know yes. that there can be sensory sensitivity to touch and smells, and, and toddlers climb yes. all over you and touch you and have all sorts of smells. Yes, they do. <laughs> there are also then social expectations of mums gathering to talk about their kids and so on. But there's also yes. the possibility that social services may question that mother's 
ability and sometimes there can be issues of uh, local authorities taking away the children and saying that the mother is not a good mother. My clinical experience has been that autistic mothers have been very good mothers. The issue has been sometimes their confidence in that area and being a bit eccentric in, well, household cleanliness isn't as important as going out in nature and feeding the ducks. And and these are sorts of things. So it's being uh, unconventional. and, And society has expectations of mothers and wives that autistic women can find difficult to cope with. That came up actually in a couple of those documentaries that I've seen recently. And and then kind of a little side point as well is I have quite a lot of autistic mothers that come to me because their children may have recently had a diagnosis. And as they're supporting them, they're thinking, that's me, that's me, because they're going through the questions. and, And that's hardly ever talked about. I don't ever see that talked about in the media, in articles. Um, but, you know, being an autistic mother and how you're able to manage, you know, just, you know, high-pitched screams if your sensitivity is certain noises, yes. for example. Needing time to just decompress and pull away. And as you say, that being equated with not being present, being absent, with being withdrawn. And then the judgment that might come with that. And that can be self-judgment as well, can't it? Yes, a judgment of how how do I know how good I am? And if you have an autistic child who's not progressing as much as you would anticipate, there yes. can be self-blame yeah. that's occurring. But there's also the issue of, for many of the autistic women, as in a relationship and with having children, they've had a high history of trauma. Yes. And trauma yes. is very high in this population. Diagnostically, sometimes it's difficult to differentiate because yes. some of the it's responses really to trauma resemble yes. autism. And my clinical opinion is that the greatest problems that I experience as a clinician with autistic people in general is not due to autism, it's due to other people. It's the way that they are bullied or teased or rejected or all sorts of things that will occur. Having autism itself doesn't necessarily lead to psychological concerns, but you do get them often because of the behaviour and attitude of other people. Yes, yes, that's a really good point. People are using the word trauma-informed now. People are starting to think about and reapproach trauma, which I think is really useful. But anybody listening today, actually, I think it's really important. We, we like to formulate in psychology, don't we? It's not just about filling in pieces of paper. And as you say, it's not just about tick boxes and scoring a certain threshold. Uh, a good assessment should be really comprehensive. So one of the things I just wanted to bring in before we finish is just being aware that an assessment process should be quite robust and thorough, that it's not about doing a quick checkbox on the internet. And there's a lot of adverts out there, click here, we'll tell you whether you have autism in five minutes, but also that the person that you're seeing, who you're going to, there are a lot of companies now, unfortunately, that have set up that will say we can give you a diagnosis of autism who are not trained in the right way, who are not doing the appropriate assessment. So just helping people learn a little bit more about what's part of the assessment process, that you shouldn't just be ticking boxes, they should be doing observations with you, looking at your history, your developmental history. Quite a lot of people I work with don't know that. Some people, I think off the back of a BBC documentary I 
did were messaging me saying I didn't have that in my assessment and I was told I don't have autism but nobody asked me these questions nobody has even gone beyond me filling in a questionnaire which I just it's quite astounding isn't it it, it, it is. I, one of the major things that I, I would look for is for a person to ask the clinician, how many autistic girls or women have you yes, seen? Yes, that's a good, good question. Because yeah. the diversity yeah. within autism yeah. is considerable. Is. Yeah. And what you do as a clinician is you compare this person to your schema yes. of aut- autism. Absolutely. And the view is, well, if it doesn't fit the people I've seen, then it's not autism. Yes. But it may be, but you may not have seen this type of expression. Yeah, so really so it's point. the breadth of clinical experience. And the the current suggestion is that the ratio of males to females in autism is two to one. That comes from adults yeah. is two to one. Because now adult autistic women are deciding, no, I, I want to check this yeah. out. I've got this feeling that I'm autistic, I want to be checked because this explains so much. But then to go to a clinician who says, no, you're not, you go, well, where, where, what? Um, But this offers the potential of self-understanding and support, but nothing else is given. So it can be very um, depressing, actually, to be a false negative. One of the things that I'm hoping people will take away from today is just a question, question, question. Question the information they're absorbing, where they're absorbing it from. Questioning the support groups, the social groups that they're in. And, you know, they're in those for the right reasons for themselves. But also in terms of the assessment process, if they do decide and they do go for an assessment and manage to get one, that people are asking the right questions, that it's the right clinician doing that assessment. Um, And that it's okay to re-question as well. A good clinician will not mind you asking about their background and their qualifications and, you know, how comfortable they are doing assessments. It should be, I always believe it should be a really collaborative process. Um, I'll, I'll give you an illustration. There was a, an autistic woman w- went for an autism uh, diagnosis and the clinical psychologist said, no, you've got borderline personality right. disorder. <laughs> she said, but I knew borderline BPD and I told him all the reasons I wasn't. And I went through all the diagnostic okay. criteria and I knew more about BPD than he did. So, yes. Isn't that interesting? So checking out that, you know, when I train, you know, being really clear about what we call the power imbalance, just because somebody has a certain title, you know, it is okay and absolutely necessary, I think, for you to work through this together. There should still be, I'm a believer with my kind of clinical background, that there should be a therapeutic relationship as well as the assessment, that it's about two people together going through that work. Um, I could talk to you all day. <laughs> Tony, I'm, I'm so appreciative because we should say you reside in Australia, don't you? And you're over in the UK at the moment. And I'm so absolutely honoured that you made time for me, especially I know because you've got a lot of things on, haven't you, at the moment. Um, where can people find you? Where do you hang out? People are going to want to hear more. So I know you have a couple of websites. Oh, okay. There, there is, okay. there are several websites. One is yeah. my own website, tonyatwood.com.au. But there's also... The webcasts that I have done with uh, Dr. Michelle Garnett, and that's at atwoodandgarnetteventscom or one word. But also, if you go to YouTube and go to Ask Dr. Tony, now that's been going for about 15 years. And 
uh, over a considerable period of time, uh, usually once every three months, Craig Evans um, sends me a list of questions, which I answer on video. It's an hour at a time. There's about 500 questions I've answered. And somebody recently catalogued. Fantastic. And so if you want to know about autism and sleep, autism and postnatal depression, autism and aging, there is probably a section that I have. So in other words, it is a spoken encyclopedia of autism on video. What a wonderful resource. Ask Dr. Tony. They're all free. Well, the, the if you want to, um, the Atwood and Garnet events, you, you have to register. Yes. And, and we've done so many of them, as you know yourself, the girls and women. You have some really interesting ones coming up. And I think that's, I think people just reading up about you, the kind of model that you use over in Australia as well, I think would be really helpful for people as well. Um, and are there any particular books that you think would be helpful for people or are they all listed on your website? I, I, I give you one site, Jessica Kingsley right. Publishers, jkp.com. I will make sure it's in the notes on as well many aspects that our new book on employment all all you do is just type in my name on there and you'll have about a dozen books uh so there are various things that uh can get more information because my role now is to pass on my wisdom to to people i've got no more mountains to climb i'm so honored that you're passing your wisdom on through my podcast and what a difference that can make to people as well i think just employment we could do a whole episode just employment couldn't we yes and and atwood and garnet events have done that right so i'll make sure that these are all on the show notes so people can just click straight on the show notes when they listen to the podcast that's on every single platform it's the same show notes so you haven't got to start typing it into a browser it's just click here and it'll take people straight to those relevant links as well and the fact that people can have accessible free resources as well which when we're talking about you know cost of living crisis at the moment as well those little things i think can make a huge difference Oh, yeah. I mean, some of the things we cover in the blog. So, for example, the link between autism and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Yeah, I'm very interested in that, actually. I work with a charity. Yes. Yeah, we've just written a blog on that. That's very interesting. Oh, well, actually, because I need to get them on my podcast. (laughs) Um, So that could be very, very interesting, actually. Maybe I'll see if I can get them on at the end of this series with you and (laughs) have those two episodes together. Tony, thank you so much. I'm going to let you get back to your cup of tea and your digestive biscuit. Seeing as you're <laughs> back in the UK, you've deserved that. <laughs> I'm you. absolutely honoured to have had you on. Um, and what a great episode. I can't wait to get this out so we can help people and further their knowledge. Thank you so much. Yes, I think what as, as we've done this, uh, people can't see because this is an audio recording. I've got a video of you. You've had various light bulb moments. <laughs> Where you suddenly gone? I am. Ah, I've written so many notes. <laughs> so the 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 uh, podcast is is for all of those interested in autism, family member with autism, and autistic people themselves. That's clinicians, professionals, yes. parents. Uh, yeah. So anybody who's been through any kind of adversity can pop along to my podcast. Look at my yeah. back catalogue and hopefully it, what I want to try and get across is what we already have in us, people's lived experience of facing adverse events, but also I have wonderful professionals and other people with insight to help us along that journey as well. Lovely to talk to you, Tony. I'll let you get back to that biscuit and tea. <laughs> Good to talk to you though, Tara. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. It's so lovely to have you here. I'm Dr. Tara Quintrarillo and you can find me at drtara.co.uk. You'll see everything I'm up to, free resources, my media work and my new COVID recovery clinic as well. Remember to please rate and review my podcast. It really helps people to benefit from the narratives of overcoming adversity if they know where to find us. The Adversity Psychologist podcast helping you one step at a time.